Hello, my steampunk survivalists, and welcome back to the Steampunk Dollhouse Supplemental. Today, we'll be covering Chapter 3 of Steampunk's Guide to the Apocalypse, which discusses the myriad means and methods by which a steampunk might begin sifting through and utilizing humanity's leftover material culture in order to increase their own chances of survival. But first, a few things I wanted to cover, as you probably knew that I would. Given the enhanced state of insanity that swept through America this last week, and um, unfortunately for me, uh, unlike my friend Dr. Amp from Washington State, I don't have any solid gold shit shovelers that I can send out to you guys, Um, so we're just going to have to kind of cut through the shit a little bit together um, as best we can. This is going to be quick, uh, because this is being covered by a lot of people in a lot of places, um, but... Nazis, bad. We all know. Um, We've all seen the footage. We've all seen the clips. We've all heard the outrage and the shock and the just appalled reactions that Nazis would be marching in Virginia in 2017. Um, Guys, Nazis in America, not new. Um, This kind of behavior in America, not new. They've always been here. Uh, They've just been quiet, a little quieter for the last few years. But this behavior, these activities, this isn't new. This isn't fresh. It's horrifying, but it's always been there. It's just that it's not usually in the communities where the people who are not people of color can see it. Uh, The white people are usually sheltered from that. And because now we have CNN and we have... 24-hour news and everybody, you know, we have Twitter. We're all seeing it all over the place all the time now. Uh, But much like the traffic stops and people being shot for reasons that don't seem to be very good reasons, this kind of shit has always existed. It's just that we're seeing it more now. Um, But Nazis in America? Yeah. Um, Like I said, I'm not going to go into all of this, um, but Nazis have been in America before. Nazis were here before World War II actually officially broke out and we got involved. We had American businessmen who liked what they were hearing from Germany. Um, Henry Ford. Look into Henry Ford. Uh, Charles Lindbergh. Yeah. um, Never, never. He falls into the category of never meet your heroes. Uh, I believe he got an award from the Third Reich at one point. Uh, For more information about that... I would suggest you go find uh, the Just a Story podcast, the one that they just did. It's actually an episode about Ian Fleming um, and his inspirations for the Bond series of books. But that inspiration came from uh, Fleming's and cohorts' activities during World War II. So they do actually go quite a bit into uh, the Nazi presence here in America uh, and Lindbergh and some other horrifying things. So Just a Story podcast, you're going to go want to find the episode about Ian Fleming. It just aired about a week before this episode. Um, So go find that. But the other horrifying thing that I think you guys need to realize, because too many people don't, um, the Nazi eugenics program, yeah, that started here. Um, That started here with the horrible, horrible things that doctors were doing to mental patients and to incarcerated uh, African-Americans. There was a lot of sterilization without permission. There was young African-American women going into hospitals for this, that, or the other procedure, being anesthetized. 
and then being sterilized. So for more information about that, uh, that's another podcast. You want to go find the Sawbones podcast. Uh, it's another couple, kind of like Just a Story. This one, uh, Just a Story is a doctor and uh, his, com- his amazing comic book artist wife. Sawbones is a doctor and her highly entertaining husband. Now, I've only listened to a few of their episodes. I don't know them as well, but I liked what I heard. Well, they did a good job uh, based, doing a basic summary of the eugenics program here in America and how that was exported to the Nazis. So, um, if you want any more information about Nazis in America, because there's a lot more, I would highly suggest uh, the Annie Jacobson books, the one that she's, ones that she's released over the last few years. Um, because you also may not realize that America imported about a thousand Nazi scientists after World War II uh, so that the commies wouldn't get them. Um, yeah, Russia and America were in a race to see how many Nazi scientists and doctors that they could snap up for their programs. So the things that we have now, a lot of the things that we are the space race, all of that good stuff. That was called Operation Paperclip. Uh, and the Annie Jacobson books that I actually just listened to all of them. Um, <laughs> they were really good. There's Area 51. And these are nonfiction. These are all Freedom of Information Act compiled uh, books, um, meticulously researched, uh, interviews, all of that good stuff. She knows her shit, man. Uh, there's Area 51. There's Operation Paperclip. There is uh, the one called the Pentagon's Brain. It's about DARPA. And then the most recent one is called Phenomena, and it's about the CIA experiments in mind control and LSD. So that's Annie Jacobson. There's four of those. Uh, They were released, the four of them, between 2011 and this year. So that'll give you some information on the Nazi presence in America. Um, The other thing that I wanted to cover uh, along these same lines, the same argument... This whole debate, I call it a debate, it really shouldn't even be a debate, but the pulling down of the Confederate monuments um, that have been going on and props to the amazing um, people in Durham (laughs) that pulled that, and and also to all the people who have been turning themselves in uh, in support of the people who actually did pull down the statues. That That was... pretty pretty cool um but one of the things that these assholes keep saying uh these white supremacist assholes keep saying is it's heritage it's heritage it's our history why don't we just pull down the i don't know statue of liberty or some bullshit yeah here's the thing um (laughs) these assholes that keep citing heritage and history um these statue a lot of these monuments that were put up were put up during the jim crow era um because we didn't have slavery anymore, but we're not going to let that stop us from keeping the black man down. So we put up all of these statues of all of these generals, that all of these military men, all of these slavery proponents that wanted to keep them down. We put them up as a reminder of the place that they believed African Americans should be in. Um, they're not that old. Most of them were, are, were pretty cheaply constructed, as the toppling of the Durham Monument would indicate. Um, but as far as all of this goes, the one thing that I'm going to uh, say, because <laughs> one thing that I will read, this is from the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center. 
They have a document. I, I do have a link to it in the show notes because um, I am nothing if not conscientious about my citing. Uh, the document is called Whose Heritage? Public Symbols of the Confederacy. And the one thing that I'm going to read from that that uh, you should all take with you and hold it to your heart in case you actually truly believe that these are important monuments that are being pulled down, this is one thing the document says. The dedication of Confederate monuments and the use of Confederate names and other iconography began shortly after the Civil War ended in 1865. But two distinct periods saw significant spikes. The first began around 1900 as southern states were enacting Jim Crow laws to disenfranchise African Americans and resegregate society after several decades of integration that followed Reconstruction. Bible of the Ku Klux Klan. The second period began in the mid-1950s and lasted until the late 1960s, the period encompassing the modern civil rights movement. So that right there um, from the Southern Poverty Law Center basically sums up the (laughs) historical nature of these monuments um, and their actual purpose uh, and meaning. Don't believe me? Go If you don't believe me, go look at the document. It's a 44-page document, um, although if you don't believe me, the document's not going to convince you anyway, and I don't know why you would be listening to my show to begin with, but I've just, I've heard some really fucking stupid things this week. Um, one thing I heard was the KKK and how, the modern KKK is not that scary. <laughs> um, I, yeah, okay. Anyway, moving on to other things. Um, enjoyful, happy, happy news. Um, we talked about this last week, but Margaret Kiljoy, her book, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, uh, again, that is out, that is available on Amazon.com. The Kindle version is $4. I have not had a chance to read it yet myself, uh, but it's getting some really good reviews, and one of the reviews that I read from Alan Moore, Alan Moore has called it scary and energetic, uh, the description for it is that it pits utopian anarchists against rogue demon deer in this dropkick in the mouth punk fantasy. Now, if that doesn't sound fucking badass, I don't know what does. So, go find The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion by Margaret Kiljoy. The link is in the show notes. There's no audio version, but hopefully, maybe one day, Miss Kiljoy will grant us with one of those. And I believe that is uh, all of the introduction that we need. So, let us move on to our chapter three of the Steampunk Survival Guide, Assessing the Bounty of Nature and Ruin. This week's Steampunk Dollhouse Supplemental is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week... I recommend Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base by Annie Jacobson. It was amazing. It will make you super paranoid. And that book is just the start of her four-book Secret Governments in America iceberg. I'm not even kidding. I listened to all four of them, one right after the other. And by the end, I was constructing a very nice tinfoil hat. So I highly suggest you start yourself off with Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base by Annie Jacobson. Visit www.audibletrial.com spdhpod to download Area 51 or 
If you want something a little easier, Audible has 180,000 titles for you to choose from. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Chapter 3. Assessing the Bounty of Nature and Ruin. While those of the upper classes might lift their nose at the thought of disturbing the precious laws of property, those of us in the working and middle classes understand what times most dire may necessitate. I mean not to mince words. The greatest source of resources available after a societal collapse will not be our dear, overtaxed earth. It will be our existing and immediately antiquated institutions. Everything will be available. The following are simply some examples of where to look. The combusting dinosaur that has wrought its own end may be taken herein as an example. An automobile may be stripped of the following resources at the very least. The seats, to serve as furniture. The springs from the shocks, which are an excellent steel alloy that will feed your forge indefinitely. There are mirrors, of use for grooming, signaling, and optical contraption. The windshield of tempered glass that may be used in the home or elsewhere. The body of the car can be converted into shelters either makeshift or permanent. The seat belts are comprised of webbing most versatile and durable. And then there are the tires. Tires are an industrialized nation's greatest unnatural resource. Older tires, those that are not steel belted, can be cut apart to make sandals. Any tire that will make an excellent raised bed planter or can be stacked to hold compost. A word of warning. Clipped to most tires are small weights composed of lead. It is best to wash your hands thoroughly after handling lead. Bulletproof glass. Bulletproof glass, which ought to be referred to as bullet-resistant glass, is a remarkably useful material for those in the construction of defenses, as it can resist most small arms fire. It is still unadvised to stand directly behind the glass when it is being fired upon. Bulletproof glass can be acquired wherever the threat of robbery is considered imminent. Specifically, it can be found in banks, police stations, and many restaurants and convenience stores in derelict neighborhoods. Timber. The most immediate source of timber for construction is waiting outside your doorstep. No, it is not the tree in your front yard. A motto to remember, not one tree until every lamppost is down. The dismantling of unused buildings is also encouraged for the myriad supplies and for the increased land area within which to construct gardens. For thick columns, might we suggest ambulating down to the railroad tracks and removing several of their numerous ties. However, owing to their treatment with creosote, railroad ties are best left unburned and are not suggested for the use of walling gardens. For raised beds, the sort on which you might opt to sleep, it is quite easy to accumulate the packing pallets that litter our society in numbers most unfathomable. Metals. With the severe and unfortunate population decrease that will follow any apocalyptic disaster, metal will no longer be a scarce commodity. Aluminum, lightweight and durable, can be gathered readily from the various signposts and lampposts around town. Steel I-beams for construction are found in most every building. Ugly public sculptures are often built of useful and beautiful materials such as copper or bronze, and it is highly recommended that the skittyscape be improved by their immediate removal and reuse. Remember that. Scaffolds are often composed of remarkably useful support poles and equally useful corrugated aluminum. 
Chain-link fencing may be cut and shaped into a lightweight armor effective against many slashing weapons. For the rural steampunk, the crash barriers that line curved roadways are most often built of steel. Gold, suddenly near useless, can be acquired in the form of bullion from vaults, although there will most likely be fools still enamored by its past value, and can be hammered thin to plate the inside of satellite dishes for the purpose of intensifying the heat of the sun. See solar cooking later in this very chapter. Why, with all the metal sitting on the surface of the earth, I will be surprised if humanity ever needs to mine again. Fabric. Our culture is up to its neck in t-shirts, but there are other fabrics more interesting if you know where to look. Huge swaths of leather are available as close to you as the nearest furniture store, and leather makes an excellent hardy addition to any wardrobe. What's more, some thicker leathers can be stiffened by means of hot water immersion and constructed into clothing more protective. Leather is also available from outlets and manufacturers, of course. Synthetic fabrics are an excellent alternative to cotton in that they, like wool, retain their insulating properties while wet. Their most serious drawback is their tendency to melt into the skin when exposed to flame. Fire-resistant clothing, however, is available in so many different forms. Firefighters, race car drivers, and welders all have specialized clothing that you might want to tailor to suit your needs. Yarn, to be knitted or crocheted with needle or hook, may be manufactured quite readily from many different fibers. Everything from human hair to the wool stuffing that fills futon mattresses may be transformed into the warmest of clothing. Bicycle tubes removed from their tires may be cut up for a thousand different applications. They are remarkably useful for tying various objects together and for strapping objects to carts. Tools. Every steampunk knows that access to tools and raw material is worth far more than a finished product. We can manufacture things to suit ourselves immediate, or suit our immediate needs and engineer devices most fitting to the situation at hand. Welding supplies will become quite valuable rather quickly, and it will be best to stockpile as much fuel as possible from welding supply shops. If you set out to scavenge resources from retail stores, then let the hardware store be your first stop. Power tools can be retrofitted to be powered by steam engine, bicycle, water wheel, foot treadle, or windmill. Plastic bottles. Empty plastic bottles can be applied to thousands of ends. Boats and rafts have been built. The plastic can be used as waterproofing. Partially filled, you have a lens with which to collect the rays of the sun and create fire. Keep water in them. Plastic bottles can be cut to form scoops, dishes, and funnels. In fact, the only drawback drawback of plastic bottles is that they remind us of a past we hope to forget. Styrofoam. That ugliest of modern wastes can be utilized as insulation and in the construction of napalm and can be gathered most readily from the many packages that may have been found amidst our rubbish. Books. It is an unfortunate reality that there might be very little time for leisurely reading in the immediate aftermath of the collapse. Narrator's note, this breaks my heart. Moving on. But regardless, there is a near-infinite wealth of knowledge captured for us in the written word, and it is quite advisable to gather a vast library of instructional material. Furthermore, when the scoundrels die back and the permacultured gardens bear fruit, there will be ample time for the perusal of the fantastical voyages you may find between the cloth covers of an adventurous book. Books are, of course, most readily available and in vast numbers at the libraries of our existing society, and it would be well advised to save them from the starving person's torch. 
Do not forget collegiate libraries, which may be well-stocked with rare and important volumes. Narrator's note, this is truth. The major chain bookstores, unfortunately, will continue to disappoint, even after the drastic reduction in price. Manufacturers. It is considered sage advice to know what sort of goods are manufactured locally because manufacturing plants will be the ideal location from which to gather supplies. From the home. Let us not forget that our neighbors, in their haste to escape the city, will leave behind everything from propane-fueled barbecues to refrigerators, from books to timber. On food. Oh, rejoice the future day when all of your nutrition will be met by foods both local and free. In the meantime, however, it will take quite a bit of work to avoid utter starvation. Read onward for salient advice on how best to avoid a diet based solely upon Twinkies and Slim Jims. Permaculture. Our mechanically minded steampunk brains are quite adept at solving the dilemmas that are forthcoming, and it is with this heightened mental awareness that we must tackle the issue of agriculture. Traditional agriculture, as utilized by pre-industrial agrarian society, is far from perfect. A lack of foresight has caused many farms to deplete the very soil upon which they were dependent. What's more, the labor-intensive struggle to raise crops emphasized unfortunate class and cultural divisions, as farmers were left with no leisure time to further their education. This is not a trap we plan on recreating. With the application of knowledge to the process of growing food, the amount of labor required can be minimized and the hazardous effects on the land can be removed altogether. This process is known as permaculture. While this method is too intricate to describe in full detail herein, the fundamentals of it are quite simple. Biomass and nutrients stay within a closed, wasteless loop. A garden is given multiple tiers, each tier reinforcing the other. Houses are incorporated into this harmony by their very structure and foundation. You are encouraged to conduct independent research into these principles so that you may intertwine the mechanical and the organic into a veritable Eden that will feed you and grant you time to pursue your tinkering. Soil samples. In many places before the apocalypse, soil testing is a free service offered by the state. You simply take various samples of your soil and mail them to the office that provides the service. This will tell you all of the terrible toxins you are going to ingest. And while cancer one day is preferable to starvation today, there are also plants one might grow to leach the toxins from the earth. Composting. One long-term solution for inadequate soil quality is to build your own soil and then plant in raised beds. One short-term solution is to raid a garden supply retailer for soil. Composting is the controlled decomposition of organic matter. It is the transition from food waste to plant food. In short, it means heaping all of your food scraps into a big pile and letting them rot. When composting on a small scale, non-vegan organic matter feces of non-herbivorous species, I'm sorry, I can never say that word, or the flesh or dairy of any animal ought to be excluded from the mix so as to avoid any soil contamination. The trick with composting is to provide a healthy mixture of carbon and nitrogen. Carbon can be found in dried lawn refuse, straws, sticks, or leaves, and nitrogen in foodstuffs and fresh-cut grasses. In addition, the compost heap should be kept slightly damp. A well-built compost heap breaks down aerobically with bacteria living happily amidst the refuse, while a poorly built one does so anaerobically, producing a great deal of methane and other foul-smelling gases. 
Therefore, it is a simple matter to use one's nose to determine how well composed your compost is. Compost requires great heat to work quickly, and it is advisable to add some kind of solar heat collector, whether lenses, mirrors, or glass. When all the compost has turned a rich brown and is crumbly to the touch, then it is ready to use the soil. Vertical gardening. Those urban among you would do well to heed the following advice. Grow upwards, not outwards. One method would be to circle would be to circle vertical poles such as signposts with planters. These planters may be carved out of water jugs, plastic barrels, or even formed of ceramics, among other materials. Cucumbers and squash may be trained to grow up vertical trellises, built of reused pallet wood or chain link fencing perhaps, as well as the more traditional grapes and beans. Tomato plants, caught in a cage, use more vertical space as well. Potatoes may be grown inside of towers of tires. Towers of tire. Each individual tire is to be packed with earth in which in the area where the tube used to be. These can be stacked to unfathomable heights. Hunting. There is a certain amount of truth to the idea that one ought to consider the ethical ramifications of the consumption of our fellow animals, but that ethical conundrum can be solved quite readily. When one takes the life of an animal, one takes on a responsibility to ascertain the future of that species. Ergo, one who hunts the great elk must also ascertain that they do not overhunt the beast and must protect its habitat from all intrusion. This is defensible on a logical level as well as the ethical. You are dependent upon the elk and a threat to its population is a threat upon your very life. This is one of the many unfortunate oversights that our current culture has made, and it is one that we shall rectify. That aside, there are many methods of hunting to choose between. For weapons appropriate to the hunt, refer to Chapter 4. Those in urban areas will find themselves relying heavily upon the trapping of birds, rats, and squirrels. If the situation is dire, you may try leaving out a tray of honey where ants are likely to gather. These ants, thus collected, are an excellent, if unappetizing, source of protein. Try frying them first. Gathering. Even within the city limits, there are a number of edible plants available. Care must be taken, however, owing to the poisons that have settled from the toxic air and permeated the urban earth. Research what wild edibles are found in your area, but some examples follow. Dandelions eat every bit but the stem. The greens are less bitter early in the season and can be steamed or boiled in two changes of water. Acorns. Break them open to get the meat out. Leach out the tannins by boiling them for two hours or putting them in a stream for several days. Red and white clover? Eat the leaves or the flowers. They're great in salads. For a rather brief introduction to medicinal herbs, refer to Chapter 5. Scavenging. At our pre-disaster population levels, every major city in the United States of America, this country being taken as an example, has approximately three days of food. Westernized economies are not currently localized, although they will be shortly enough, and we are completely dependent upon trucks and trains to feed ourselves. It is perhaps needless to say that the scavenging during an apocalyptic event might be fierce, competitive, and potentially lethal. However, Historical analysis of post-Hurricane New Orleans indicates that it is also possible that a cooperative spirit may take hold of the populace, particularly if the population is diminished by an exodus. In this best-case scenario, it will not behoove you to be the only selfish person around, and we suggest that you offer your help and expertise. But if a more cutthroat philosophy 
philosophy prevails, it will not do to procrastinate the gathering of foods. We highly recommend that while others loot the stores, you raid the warehouses and distributors of bulk, non-perishable foods. Food preservation. What good will the summer fruits do you in the cold of winter? None if you do not adequately preserve them. Canning. Gather together a large number of mason jars and canning lids. These can be acquired from many grocery stores, farm centers, department stores, etc. It is easier to can highly acidic foods such as tomatoes, fruit, and pickled vegetables. And narrator's note, mason jars, um, here in the south, a lot of the time they're ball jars, uh, B-A-L-L, just ball across the glass. They are everywhere. They are so ubiquitous that we use them as drinking glasses. So that is one thing that we should not have trouble finding in the apocalypse are mason jars. A brief and inadequate summary of the process of canning is as follows. Simmer the empty canning jar and its associated lid in a large covered pot of water. Remove the jar and fill it with your foods, prepared from recipes. Run a rubber spatula between the food and the inside edge of the jar three times or so to force out any bubbles of air. Secure the jars by means of the two-part lids and then place back into the boiling water, ascertaining that said water's depth exceeds the height of the jars for the prescribed period of time. Remove and store. Immersion. The rural among us might do well to place their foods in watertight containers and immerse them, well secured in running water. This also serves as a natural and effective refrigeration. Root cellars. Food stores longer at lower temperatures and any person among us who has lived in a basement knows that the bowels of the earth are cold places indeed. A basement, if insulated from the rest of the house, can often serve as an effective refrigerator of its own. For a small storage chest, an old refrigerator, available in every home, will serve quite handily as they are remarkably well insulated. Simply remove the electrical connections and bury it in the ground, leaving a few centimeters and the door above the soil. Mechanical Refrigeration Unfortunately, there is not enough breadth within this book to adequately cover mechanical refrigeration. But we will present two basic available versions. One, the propane-fueled refrigerators that may be stripped from RVs and converted to run on other sources of heat, such as the sun. Two, the Stirling engine. When running for, the Stirling engine, when run in reverse, produces a refrigeration effect. With the Stirling approach, it is not inconceivable to run a refrigerator by bicycle, water wheel, or steam engine. Solar cooking. Your goal with solar cooking is to reach high temperatures. To this end, you should work with a large black pot with a matching lid. When cooking via solar heat, do not remove the lid to stir, as this will allow the heat to escape. All manner of devices can be built to direct the searing heat of the sun into your pot. First, the greenhouse effect. Layers of glass that the sun can penetrate in only one direction. This can be as simple as a clear plastic bag placed over your pot, or as complex as a metal oven with an angled glass lid. Reflectors are your friends. Mirrors, broken CDs, or even recovered gold can be mounted to stiff materials and used to reflect light and heat onto your food. The parabolic shape of satellite dishes makes a remarkably powerful reflector and can be used to create intense heat for cooking. Do not look directly into the reflected light. Mount your satellite stove onto two rotating axes so that it may follow the sun during the course of the day. You could even build a system of clockwork to automate the task. Other forms of food preservation. Food may be preserved by means of salt, smoke, dehydration, or pickling. 
The salting process is mostly used for various meats and consists essentially of pounding salt into the flesh of whatever creature you may be cutting. Smoking is useful for meat, cheese, and tofu, and involves keeping your food above a smoky fire for many hours. Dehydration is a nearly universally useful process, which is used in the preservation of vegetables, meats, fruits, and herbs. Solar dehydration is of particular interest to the mad scientist and can be constructed quite readily from materials at hand. With solar dehydration, it is important to not allow the fruit to become too hot early in the process, else it will not fully dry. To this end, it is best to avoid direct sunlight. This section did include numerous diagrams for you to construct the contraptions and machinery described, so you can find those at the website, as usual, SPDHPod, and you'll look under Survival Guide, or you can go directly to the Steampunk Survival Guide, the full PDF. Uh, Again, link is in the notes. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion matters and it has an impact on how many people can find us. And with that, we're done. We'll see you next week for Silence in the Library or Why Burning, Banning, and Burying Are Not Effective Methods of Thought Control with Rachel Kane's The Great Library Series. Steampunk's Guide to the Apocalypse was written by Margaret Kiljoy and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick and is licensed by Ms. Kiljoy under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. You can find more information about the passions and projects of Margaret Kiljoy at birdsbeforethestorm.net. If you'd like to delve deeper into the mind of Ms. Kiljoy, you can find her first novel, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, available now on Amazon.com. As per usual, Links are in the show notes. Additional episode writing by Elizabeth Hedrick. Produced by Elizabeth Hedrick and Matt Davis. The background music in this episode was Steampunk by Bua Kanja, which can be found at thefreemusicarchive.org. For more information about the text and music used in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. That any tips, hints, how-tos, or advice given in these supplemental episodes is for entertainment only. Many of these activities could be dangerous and or illegal. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Fourteen, thirty-two, zero. Fourteen, twenty-eight, twenty-five, twenty-five, zero. Nineteen. 32, 21, 25, 36, 34, 32, 0, 12, 22, 16, 0.